Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. You'll never have the sacred stone. <laughs> oh, this you crazy mother. Welcome to the Dead Pundits Society. Now here is your host, Adam Proctor. Welcome everybody to this week's installment of the Dead Pundit Society. As always, I'm Adam Proctor, I'm your host. Joining me today, I have two guests to break down our topic. Joining me is Megan Erickson Kilpatrick. She is an author, activist, and educator out of New York City. And alongside her is Kinzo Shibata. He's a former educator and labor and education activist in Chicago. Stay tuned. We're going to talk about neoliberal education and what to do about it. You're not going to want to miss it. I'm going to start today's show with a little anecdote. And it's one that inspired the topic of today's show, which is neoliberal education. So a friend of mine works at a charter school in New Orleans. This is an experience that has been horrific for her on many levels. Her school is dirt poor. It's been labeled underperforming. And it's 99% black. It possesses all of the defects and characteristics of the post-Katrina neoliberalization of that proud city of New Orleans. I'm often haunted by one particular story she shared with me about her pre-kindergarten kids. We're talking about four to five-year-olds here. One day in the cafeteria at lunch, she watched a kid struggle to open his milk carton. And I too remember how hard it could be to open those damn milk cartons. Sometimes you'd have to get a knife to open it once the carton became too flimsy to pry open the normal way. But these kids don't have access to knives, so that's not an option for them. Plus, they're five years old, and they may not have the kind of ingenuity required for such a task. In any case, my friend bent down to help this kid with his battered milk carton. Another teacher, a New Orleans native no less, shouted at my friend from across the cafeteria. Don't you help them. They can do it themselves. Don't let them fool you like that. They need to learn. Long story short, my friend was not allowed to help the five-year-olds with their milk cartons anymore. And this kid never did open his milk. It ended up in the trash. This story is emblematic of the way that poor, racialized kids are treated in this school and every other one like it in New Orleans. It's discursively projected as resiliency and tough love by the New Orleans natives and charter school advocates alike. But just below the ideology lies something far more sinister. The message to these kids is loud and clear. You are alone in this world. Authority figures are here to discipline and punish you, not to provide any assistance, love, or support. You sink or swim and you'll undoubtedly sink, so you'd better get used to it. There is a zero-tolerance policy for failure. Pay no mind to the fact that the bar for success is set at a totally unrealistic level. You cannot, 
moreover, should not expect any assistance from those in positions of authority. Once more, you are alone in this world. That's the message to these kids. I think about this pre-K kid, and I compare him to little Rutherford, who attends pre-K at a $40,000 a year private school in New Orleans just down the street. Rutherford is supported, loved, and encouraged to make mistakes under controlled conditions. Who succeeds in the end, you might ask? Little Rutherford or my friend's pre-K kid? Well, we all know the answer to that question. The outcome to that contest was predetermined from the start, and it has far more to do with resources and opportunities than psychology alone. But the class psychology lesson here is as palpable as it is devastating. Welcome to the neoliberal wasteland. You are on your own, unless you're born rich. It was on the heels of writing down that devastating little anecdote that I decided on the topic of today's show. And that is the neoliberalization of education and the way it damages poor and working class kids across the country. Joining me to talk about this topic are two people who have firsthand experience on this battleground. First is Megan Erickson. Megan Erickson Kilpatrick, I should say. She is the author of the recent Class War, The Privatization of Childhood. And that's out from Verso Books in 2015. In addition, that is one of the Jacobin titles that was was released under that uh, label as well. It's a really fantastic book. I talk it up throughout the interview and I really mean it. Uh, Whether you're a newbie to education policy and politics or whether you're a seasoned veteran or yourself a teacher, you will benefit from this book. It's a really novel intervention in the topic. Uh, She really does something new rather than just regurgitating existing facts in hot takes and so on. In addition to uh, Megan today on the show, I've got Kenzo Shibata. Kenzo was an educator in Chicago, and he's now an education labor activist in that city. Kenzo offers a firsthand uh, perspective on the really inspiring labor battles in education in Chicago with the Chicago Teachers Union and the Core Caucus uh, that many of you will have heard about by now. So he adds that as an interesting perspective, and and I really appreciated his uh, intervention in the interview. In any case, one final reminder, as you all will be aware by now, I have a Patreon page. If you like this episode and you want to see these uh, you know, continue to come along, check it out. It's uh, patreon.com slash deadpundits. Once more, that's patreon.com slash deadpundits. Also, follow me on Twitter. If you're doing that, I'm at deadpundits. Check me out on Facebook. I've got a Facebook page. Just search for Dead Pundit Society. You can get all kinds of updates there. And finally, relevant to our show today, Education Secretary Betsy DeVos served as commencement speaker at Bethune-Cookman. Please enjoy 30 seconds of her being booed. Dr. Jackson, Board of Trustees, thank you so very, very much for this great honor and privilege. 
I am honored to become a Wildcat. And it's a real honor and privilege to be with you as we celebrate the Bethune-Cookman University Class of 2017. Congratulations to all of you. The kids are Welcome back to the show, everybody. Joining me today, as I mentioned, is Megan Erickson Kilpatrick. She's an editor at Jacobin Magazine. She's an educator in New York City and the author of the excellent book, Class War, The Privatization of Childhood, which is out from Verso Books. Joining me as well is Kenzo Shibata. He is a former Chicago City educator, and he's an education and labor activist, and uh, he's joining me today. So welcome, both of you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So, Megan, I want to start a little bit of talking about the book uh, that you wrote. You describe a real hellscape of an education system that we're living under today. You write that the dystopia of capitalist schooling, where school systems are de facto sorting grounds, locking people into their faded class position with each step, and students often engaged self-consciously in a fight over limited resources, open college seats, future jobs, which really recalls the Hunger Games. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a little bit about your experience that, that sort of got you there in New York City and, and how you came to these conclusions. Yeah, so I'm a teacher right now working in the public schools. Um, and before that, I was a child care worker for three years at OYMCA. Um, and as a teacher, I noticed that my kids really love the Hunger Games and they love all of dystopian literature. In fact, I think we're kind of mm -hmm. living in a golden age for dystopian mm -hmm. teen literature. And why are these kinds of books so appealing to kids? Because, I mean, I think for many reasons, but certainly because it, it mirrors the experience that they're living, that um, kids are being sorted and tracked into very separate and unequal education systems, one for rich children and one for poor children. And the one for rich children is very progressive. It, it takes place in private schools or in difficult to get into public schools where um, the education is child-centered. It's about students participating and speaking up and learning how to use their voices and collaborate. Um, and also very generally very rooted in progressive education traditions. Mm -hmm. um, like for example, the Silicon Valley, like a lot of the employees of Silicon Valley and high up people like the CTO of eBay send their kids to Waldorf schools, which are um, the children don't even use computers in them until I think like high school. Um, so it's all about like hands-on learning and inquiry based wow. kind of, um, activities. And these people are like, of course my kids can learn computers when they're like 13. But right now I want them to have this play-based education, um, small class sizes, things like that. And then on the other hand, in public schools, there's like increasing use of technology um, and in really oppressive, not liberating ways. So it's just kind of kids in their seats working individually and independently. Um, and, and also, I think, more of an emphasis on following rules um, and kind of being the recipient of knowledge um, from the teacher and also of philanthropy from from right, right. you know corporate kind of entities like the the Gates Family Foundation. Right. So before the interview earlier in the show, I gave a little anecdote about uh, my friend's experience in the New Orleans school system, which is just a neoliberal 
uh, bastion of this sort of progressive reform that you speak of with the privatization of education following the Hurricane Katrina and, and so on and so forth. So clearly there's a, a class differentiation of what education looks like in our, in our country. And I think many of us will have only been exposed to one version of that. Um, and I know that New Orleans is kind of far along on the on the on the the scale of uh, you know awfulness. But Kenzo, what were your experiences as an educator in Chicago? Did they mirror what Megan was uh, explaining? Definitely. Uh, one of the I, I taught high school English, and one of the things we, we I learned pretty early on was you need to find out what the testing schedule is for the year because we had mostly students who did not have computers at home, and during testing season. The computer labs are off limits to anyone who wasn't doing test prep or administering a test. So, I, you know, the, I would have to get very creative and just make sure there weren't any papers uh, written around that time. And the interesting thing about this type of education reform, where they want to have no union and they feel like computers can teach students, is that the people who are the proponents of these policies don't send their kids to these types of schools. Like in Chicago, we have. Mayor Rahm Emanuel sends his kids to the University of Chicago Lab Schools, which is a mm. great school. It's a school that's staffed by um, unionized teachers who are all certified, and the kids don't spend their day doing drill and skill test taking. They're actually learning arts and music and have this full enriched curriculum that Rahm Emanuel doesn't see poor kids needing. Interesting. And I'm sure at uh, those rich schools, uh, those rich private or charter schools, the, the teacher to uh, student to teacher ratio is, is fairly low as well. One anecdote that Megan shared in her uh, book was that the student to teacher ratio at Sidwell Friends School in New York City, where Obama's girls went, mm-hmm. uh, the student to teacher ratio there is one to 10, uh, mm. which is astonishingly low. And I'm sure that's not something you see in the poorer classrooms. Would you say, Kenzo? Well, our special, our students with special needs are supposed to have that. And mm. uh, we just know that many of them are not even getting that. And that's interesting to, to think about students who don't have special needs getting those kind of accommodations. Uh, they're not even called accommodations when they get it. They're just, that's comes with the tuition, I suppose. Right. So we've got a good overview of what we're going to be facing here during the interview of the critique of neoliberal education. Let's take a step back. Megan, you share in the book very early on a a little anecdote and a story that really reveals how to what extreme what extreme sense education has become uh, a sorting mechanism to access scarce resources in, in our society. And you say that one of your jobs was helping parents from all backgrounds apply to public and private kindergarten Right. So when I was a kid, kindergarten, I went to a public school in a small town. Kindergarten was just something you just showed up to. And like, here I am, you know, I'm ready to be a kindergartner. So tell us a little bit about the the transformation there and, and, and what you went through in, in that prep industry for kindergarten. Sure. So in under Mayor Bloomberg in New York City, the school system changed dramatically. Um, and now it's set up so that children have to apply. Nobody is guaranteed to go to their local public school. Children have to apply to kindergarten. Um, they have to apply to middle school and then they have to apply to high school. And the differences among different communities are really varied. So for the children that I was working with at the time, um, it could it generally the options were all good, but, these sort of middle class and upper middle class parents were very focused, understandably, on um, 
pretty small shades, like degrees of difference between the public schools, but they were all good schools um, where these kids would be going. Mm -hmm. Now I'm teaching in East New York, which is um, one of the lowest um, income neighborhoods in New York City. And the choices for my kids, like when they get their little letter on the day that they find out who goes where to which different high school, I teach in a middle school right now, the difference is between going to a school that has a 70% um, dropout rate versus, you know, a different, a Stuyvesant or, you know, a school, a very, very kind of different school. So the stakes are really different, but all of the families are going through this really difficult process. Um, and I think what's really interesting in the New York City school system is that it's all about individual choice. So public schools are completely reframed as this sort of individual struggle to get in, and, and it's a really myopic focus. Um, and I and I think parents feel like a lot of responsibility for their kid too. Particularly, like if you think about a kindergartner, it's a four year old. Like what choice? Like what can a, a student interview really tell you at that point? <laughs> you know, um, and sure. so so they feel like they're acting on behalf of the kids, which is which is difficult. But also, when even though you have all this individual choice, there are no guarantees. So it's not it's like changing a system based on your your inalienable right to go to public school into something that um, is based on your individual decisions and ultimately your merit as a child. Um, and of course, that translates into parents really like children, of course, with, with parents who have the time to put into this process are going to have better outcomes than those who don't. Right. And, and what does this individualized model of school choice, uh, this transformation uh, say about the community aspect of education or what should be a community aspect of education? You know, as I said, I use my, my own self here as growing up in a small, small town America with public schools. My mother was a public school teacher as well. So I have a great amount of sort of respect for that experience. You know, when you were a very small child, you know, you'd, you'd pass by the elementary school. Your, 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 your parent could point to the elementary school and say, that's where you're going to go to school. Likewise, you could look at the middle school and the high school. And there was a, so there's a sense of sort of like community ownership. And so you just sort of knew that's where I'm going. That school is mine. And it's, it seems that this, trans, this transformation to this individualized model of school choice really undoes that connection, that central connection that public schools have in sort of catalyzing uh, in community formation. Um, is, is that a similar experience that you have, Kenzo, in Chicago as well? Oh, yeah, Definitely. The way that uh, it works in Chicago is you have, you know, your public neighborhood schools, which are the ones that, you know, de depending on where you live, that that's where you're sent. And then, you know, you have charter schools, which are schools that, that te technically have no boundaries and you can apply to them from anywhere, uh, anywhere you live in the city. Um, and you can choose to go to a charter school and it's tuition free. Um, I mean, there's some caveats there. Like there are some schools that have, um, like the Doble Street network of schools where they have these extremely high um, fees for students. So like if a student is wears the wrong color belt one day that's out of uniform, that's like a $5 fee that they have to pay. And then they're accountable to the, towards the end of the year. So you have a bit of a de facto, de facto uh, class sorting in those schools because some kids won't get their report cards or be able to get their diploma if they can't pay their, their fees at the, end of the, at the end of the school wow. year. Um, and we also have a magnet school system, which are completely public schools. The members are members of, or the teachers and staff there are members of the Chicago Teachers Union. 
and students apply, and that's also um, citywide where people can apply to go to those schools. And uh, there's a big push now in Chicago to, to improve the neighborhood schools. And so you have parents who are, you know, like I look at, you know, my own family. My wife got involved in the local school council uh, before our son, or right around the time um, he was born. And she was a neighborhood representative. And in Chicago, we have these local school councils. We don't have a citywide school board, but we have uh, these small elected uh, boards at each school that make decisions on discretionary spending and they hire and fire principals. And uh, they, they're kind of limited in their scope of uh, what they can make decisions on. Uh, so she's been involved in that for a very long time and with a lot of parents trying to uh, make sure the school continues being a good educational experience for our for our kids. Uh, and that's kind of the price you pay. Either you, you're literally paying out of your pocket for a private school or you're volunteering a lot of your time with your neighborhood school. Um, and you're also donating school supplies and tissues. And, you know, it's no matter what, there really isn't a free public education system here uh, if you're really trying to get as much out of the, the experience as possible for your kid. Right. So it sounds like to me, it's either subsidized by your wealth or by your time and your energy. Yes. Um, and and, and it, yeah. uh, the way charter schools operate in Chicago are a little different uh, than other cities. Uh, charter schools in Chicago almost exclusively serve black and brown communities. And uh, also the way they work is they are kind of like a, another sorting mechanism. So students who maybe couldn't test into um, a magnet school, but their parents are very involved and engaged and are putting, you know, doing the research and, and putting out applications to various schools, those kids get to go to the charter schools. And the charter school operators understand this and they hold this over students' heads all the time. And, you know, you hear stories all the time about they'll admit X amount of students at the very beginning of the year they'll push out, or it's called counseling out, where they don't actually kick a student out, but they make life very difficult for the student there. Uh, the kid will leave, the funding will stay in the charter school, and the child will then be sent to one of the neighborhood public schools who will not receive any additional funding. Wow. Wow, that's just blatant. Yes. It's, it's right there in, in front of us. So let's let's pivot, uh, Megan, to your experience at Stuyvesant uh, High School in uh, New York City. Uh, tell us a little bit about, about that institution and what it represents and, and what your experiences were there. So I was a student teacher at Stuyvesant um, in 2009 or 10. Um, it's a magnet school. Um, and so magnet schools were, they were originally started as um choice programs that with the goal of, um, integration. So, um, it was after busing and, um, the turn away from forcefully integrating schools, magnets were kind of a way to pull, um, higher income and white families back into the public school systems in cities. And they're, they're very good in New York historically. Stuyvesant is a really strong school. But one of the things that I noticed as a student teacher was just how um, the, the heavy weight carried by the students there. Um, also, of course, as Kenzo was talking about, um, it's still so you take a test to get into these types of schools. Um, it's a very small percentage of students who get in. And there are test prep programs that are designed that some kids are taking, you know, like 
three years before the application process. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they already start with a big step up for entry into the schools. Um, and so it's, it's a very, it's like 20% um, white students and I think 60% Asian students the last time I looked at the numbers. So it's not racially diverse. It's not socioeconomically diverse. It doesn't mirror um, the population of the city at all. But even the students who go to those schools, as I was saying, it's, it's a kind of cutthroat education. Sounds really nightmarish, but it, I mean, it, when that school came up in this sort of progressive civil rights era, was there sort of a narrative, a discourse of racial uplift that was sort of underlying that? That's something that um, my show sort of tackles quite a bit and will be tackling in the very near future, this notion of racial uplift, which is that we sort of need to identify the talented 10th or whatever, whatever the you know narrative was within the, the racial minority class and be able to pull them up and give them the best chance so that they can go back out amongst the people and, and lift them up in turn. It sounds like that's part of that narrative. Was that something that Stuyvesant and other schools were a part of? I mean, I think in general, the American public schools function that way in our society, that they've always been seen as the great equalizer, which they're clearly not, mm-hmm. um, and, and are meant to, to, yeah, to provide this sort of uplift. Um, but I, I think they've done such a horrible job functioning that way that I think really they were meant as more as a way of equalizing it. Honestly, no, I, I don't think that was really part of it. And the NAACP has come out against them as well. Uh-huh. So like I said, it's, 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 a, it's a choice um, kind of way of integrating public schools, right. as so, far as I know. So in your book, you, you, you indicate here what you're hinting at is that what is clear is that family wealth and children's academic achievement are related and well before children enter school. So if, if education is not the model uh, that we need in our society to sort of um, equalize things, um, what are the underlying dynamics at play here in terms of how students uh, achieve or, or not? Um, I think there's like two things that we have to look at. One is is creating a policy for equalizing society, which like I said, should not just fully be born by schools. And another is like, what could schools look like when they're divorced from that function of like sorting students and being forced to create um, some sort of equality in our society, um, or, or when they have that ideological function. And I think um, in terms of equalizing society, from from what I've seen, the best education policy would be just a left-wing progressive labor policy, like rights for the parents of children mm-hmm. in schools. So, like, for example, recently I showed the documentary The Hand That Feeds. Um, it's, it's about immigrants at a hot and crusty, which is like a little deli in New York City, um, being threatened with deportation by the manager of the cafe and they came together and created an independent union so that they couldn't do this. But after I showed this to my students, one of my kids raised his hand and was like, that happened to my dad. And, um, and, and I mean, this was a common experience for, I had about 30 students in the class and like most of them could relate to this. Like this is something my family has, has gone through. Um, and these are 11 year old, 12 year old kids. And I said, okay, so, so like what happened when they were withholding his pay and threatening him? And he said, we didn't eat for four months. Like we just didn't have food. And so I think that's like a, a child can't function well in a school when they have this going on at home. So anybody who starts out with 
passion or concern for children is going to inevitably be drawn to the fact that it's it's all it's it's all functioning together. Schools are not part of schools are not existing in a vacuum. They exist in society, um, and so so I think really that kind of change is what's required to make them functional. I think in terms of like what a good outcome for schools would be, it's kind of it's so hard to speak to because our schools are so far from what I would like them to be. Mm-hmm, right. um, and I think it's, it would be less emphasis on outputs on like on student test scores and what students can do and more emphasis on inputs and like asking questions. What does a good education look like? Um, I think like we, we know a lot of research based ways to, create better outcomes for students, though. It's just that in the United States, a lot of our academics and researchers are coming up with these studies that show us that reducing class size and um, creating race and socioeconomic-based integration improve edu- educational outcomes. We're just not doing those things. So there, mm-hmm. there, those our research here in the United States is being implemented in other countries around the world, like in Finland, which have has t- higher test scores than we do. Um, but we're just not following it, it for ideological reasons. Um, so I think I think a good start for our schools would be smaller class sizes and more mm-hmm. integration. And one of the models that um, is certainly not a panacea. I mean, we still need universal health care. We need redistributive wealth in this country. But, you know, there's this community school model where a school building is open from very early in the morning to late at night. Parents are allowed in. There's a health clinic on site that as is accessible to parents and members of the community. There's a food pantry there, there's parenting classes. You know, that that is something that actually has proven to help a lot where you are, you know, you're influencing the students' uh, ability to be alert in class and well-rested and parents' ability to deal with some of the issues that they have that they might bring home um, at, at the end of the day of work. But it's also, it's never part of the corporate education reform conversation. Right, uh, right. Where they, you know, people are more than willing to throw money um, into more testing and charters and all these experiments, but you have this community school model, which is proven to help kids. It's definitely not enough, but it, it does help them, and there's no appetite from that community to throw money at at that project. Wait, but I thought Mark Zuckerberg fixed all of this with his, you know, <laughs> multi-million dollar uh, donation to the Newark, uh, you know, Newark, was it Newark City Public Newark, School yeah. System? Yeah. No, so we're, we're, we don't have, I mean, I think our problems are solved, right? It seems like we're done here. That's the interesting thing too about charters. It's like maybe, you know, if the whole idea of charters is like, these are supposed to be these laboratories where you make these, these experiments, you know, you experiment on these students and then you're supposed to export all these successful experiments to the other schools. You never see these reports. You never hear about what's going on there. So like maybe there, there was some success in Newark, but they're hiding it. I can't imagine they would hide it if they wasn't success at all. But also, why are the students lab rats? You know, like, mm-hmm. why are these particular populations <laughs> yeah. serving as, like, working to test these ideas when we have mm-hmm. years of research that we know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, would the Obama girls get uh, music and arts and a broad humanities education with low student-to-teacher ratios? And, um, you know, it seems to be working for them. I mm-hmm. mean, you would, you would think these kids were flunking out and failing to go to Yale and Harvard, but they're not. It works for them. Uh, what's, what's good enough for the rich is clearly uh, too good for the poor and working class, it seems to be. So this is, at, at bottom, really a class issue that needs to be addressed as mm-hmm. such. 
um, you know, as, as Megan alluded to, immigration policy is just as important in terms of raising our public educa- our education standards. In the and country. housing policy as and well. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about that. I wanted to move that next. It's very apt. Uh, so you mentioned in your book, Megan, because the U.S. relies heavily on property taxes to fund education, housing policy has deep consequences for the distribution of and access to educational resources. So tell us how that works a little bit. Yeah, so, I mean, the way schools are funded, it's based, in the United States at least, it's based on um, what your parents pay for their property taxes, like you said. And school finance reform is actually one of the forms of educational reform that has a long history in this country, but unfortunately most of that history includes ignoring it and and not changing it. Um, But the effect has been that the United States is one of like a handful of OECD countries where more money and resources are invested in kids from higher socioeconomic statuses than in kids from lower socioeconomic statuses. (laughs) So um, the results are that like only in the U.S. and Turkey and Slovenia and Israel do um, students in disadvantaged schools have higher student-teacher ratios than students in in um, very very advantaged schools. Wow, I mean, I think you I mean that's those number those figures aren't even including the vast amounts of money that uh, these families, these wealthy families, put into their own children's education from you know buying the baby Einstein DVDs when the child is one year old, all the way up through getting you know tutoring and test prep when they're four to get into the right kindergarten and and, and thereafter. So it seems that the the lopsided distribution and wealth for ed- education for the extremely rich is just really out of control in our country. Kenzo, are you do you experience the similar types of dynamics in Chicago? Oh yeah, definitely. And just to bring up, Megan brought up um, the OECD. Uh, whenever they do those these tests, where they test you know, internationally to see how schools are doing, or Illinois, or sorry, uh, America, of course, is does not do very well. But then when you look at all, like, the, the cross tabs and like you look at the data and you control for poverty, we actually are doing extremely well uh, nationally education wise so like there was clearly a disparity there and uh in chicago it's it's very much in your face you know you have wealthy suburban schools just to the north of the city where you'll have a fencing gym and a climbing wall and then you have schools in chicago where there aren't enough textbooks and there aren't enough uh, teachers even where you know you'll have kids stockpiled into a gym because they just didn't have enough teachers for that day and you know they'd have one teacher and they're monitoring the students for the the period and then they would get sent off to the next classroom uh which you don't see at um at, at schools that do better uh you know where, with the, where the people do better financially and you know it, it even spills even further into like the chicago public schools and i new york public schools are very similar in that the school board is in, in i know new york it's it's mostly composed of appointed members, and in Chicago, it's completely appointed. So you have no democracy there. It's very much fits in with the neoliberal model there, where you have you know quote unquote experts and appointed to these boards, not elected, not accountable to anyone, making these decisions. And then you just you cross the the border from Chicago to Evanston or Oak Park or any of these other districts that have are flush with cash, and they have. A school board that's elected and the people live in the community they live amongst uh their students and the parents and they're they're highly accountable uh so money um 
as far as the, those disparities go, it spills all into everything, um, including decision making. Right. So I mean, let's let's get to the brass tacks here. It seems like it's it's evident we've we've made a case that education in the United States plays uh, a, a role as a conveyor belt for you know class. Uh, reproduction throughout society. So let's talk explicitly about this uh, social reproduction effect of of education. Uh, Megan, you write, upper middle class kids may be encouraged to be articulate, self-confident, and and to negotiate with adults. These are all personality traits that are required from supervisory white-collar jobs. Whereas lower middle class and working class kids may receive subtle cues that they should respect authority and become subordinate. So there are certain kind of characteristics that we're ingraining in in these kids from different class backgrounds to prepare them for this sort of either degrading or privileged job status that they will hold in the future. What what kind of role do you do you see that playing in your school? I think it's so my school is a little bit different than that. I think this is much more of a systemic thing than um, necessarily an individual school level issue. Mm-hmm. Um, generally, like overall, family income is the best predictor of children's academic and cognitive performance, period. Um, but still, our discourse in terms of education reform is about um, teacher accountability. And even like the conservative economist Eric Konishak, who really um, perpetuated this idea that we should be tying um, teacher evaluations to student test scores, has found that teacher effectiveness only has a 7% impact on student achievement, ultimately. So it's wow. really out-of-school factors that affect student performance to begin with. Um, but when we talk about education reform, corporate reformers are talking about, um, you know, focusing all on on um, really these punitive measures of, of what teachers should be doing. I do think that, that schools are sites of struggle, and I think that teachers and students push back against those things every day in schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't want to kind of paint this picture of kids and teachers just kind of going through like the um, another brick in the wall video, like the meat grinder <laughs> of public education. Um, but But... I think that's overall at a structural level what what they're trying what uh, corporate reformers are trying to push us towards. Right. If you don't eat your meat, you can't have any pudding or something like that. Uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I saw uh, Paul Vallis, who is the former CEO of the Chicago Public Schools, and he was in New Orleans. He was kind of he's put somewhere to privatize schools and and break unions or at least diminish their their power. And I saw him speak once and like he said, the perfect model for education is you walk into one classroom and a teacher is saying a sentence. You walk out of that classroom to the next one next door and that teacher can finish the last teacher's sentence. Yes. Yes. I want things to be extremely streamlined and uh, scripted. Yeah, that's that was my experience, actually, at the last public school I taught in mm. um, where the way that we were evaluated, if a principal walked in, you needed to be on your mini lesson where you're doing a think aloud because education is all about jargon. (laughs) Um, And so you're literally like showing your explicit thinking processes to the student and that can be seven minutes and then the students are working in small groups and that's going to go on for 20 minutes and then you're going to do a three minute conclusion. And these things are all a lot of them are based in like what research shows as effective in terms of like um, 
cognitive development and memory and things like that. But they're not, that's not the way a classroom should work. And it's not a way that a classroom can work if you're actually involving students in the process mm-hmm. and if, if everything's not just directed by the teacher. So it sounds to me that, that this is a part of the more ongoing uh, process in the last 30, 40 years in the United States of de-skilling of workers. So when you're giving uh, teachers scripts and you're taking this sort of creative um, faculties away from them mm-hmm. in the workplace to do their job as they know how to do it best, this is really a sort of the de-skilling, the neoliberalization of the work process for in, in the schools, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and I think that's one thread of it, and that's the kind of thread that has gotten um, a lot of like these 20, 30-year teachers that I've known, um, who, by the way, that's that's a really important way that new teachers learn. Like my first year mm-hmm. of teaching, I just sat in those people's classrooms. So they are hugely important to our educational system, and they're all waiting until they can retire. Like they're literally just counting the minutes. Um, and then the other hand of that is that you have these like really inexperienced teachers. Um, I think in New York City, there's been a choice that's essentially made because if you look at what teachers are paid when they're starting out, it's about forty, fifty thousand dollars a year. Um, and those career teachers are making like a hundred thousand dollars comparatively. So it's much cheaper to have a, a um, teacher working for like two years in a school and then leaving and then just bringing in another teacher. Um, but those teachers don't like have a good understanding of the system, of their rights as teachers. So that's a problem that I really see at my current school, which is really well intentioned. Um, and we, you know, there is a progressive ethos underlying it that comes from the principal and the administration, but the high turnover makes that really hard to enact. Um, like for example, recently somebody told me last year during the votes um, on union representation, we have um, a a more radical kind of rank and file um, part of our union, similar to what CORE is called more. Um, And you vote on who you want to represent you. And um, the the, uh, dean who was giving out these ballots for the union elections was literally instructing the teachers on how to fill them out and like, okay, put your check for this person, which of course was not the more representative. Um, and so, so that's just like one tiny example of, of the problem with teachers not really understanding their rights. And, um, I think also just, just not having those strong kind of mentors, Mm -hmm. um, who can help them out that, that culture is going missing from our schools. Right, so that that absence of mentorship and that knowledge sharing that happens in in a in a self active uh, union, uh, you know, uh, union type of environment within schools is, is really sort of disappearing, and it's yeah, very and, sad. And the idea of like teachers as active, engaged professionals mm-hmm. versus teachers as more passive workers who are um, being expected to follow scripts. Right. So teachers in, in many ways are kind of going the way of the, the skilled craftsman, the artisan, right? Yeah. In, in terms of just being this sort of a body in reading a script. So it sounds to me, Kenzo, like this high turnover is uh, you know a, a pretty blatant way of controlling the labor force to implement these top-down administrative reforms. Uh, how does that play out in Chicago? Uh, these top-down reforms? Right, the high turnover, uh, the Teach for America, the, mm-hmm. the, that, that type of dynamic, which sort of breaks up the sort of uh, organic solidarity in the workplace amongst teachers and, and, and uh, makes it harder to resist these reforms. 
Well, yeah, it's there's a there's a real struggle uh, with keeping teachers in the classroom, and there's a there's a new model or a somewhat new model in in Chicago called student based budgeting, which has been uh, which is killed. It's killing education in Chicago. I'll be that bold as to say it. And the idea there is that instead of teacher or instead of schools getting assigned a certain amount of, of teachers they can hire, depending on how many students they have, uh, they're actually assigned a, a bucket of money per student they have. So that's a finite number, depending on how many students they have. So it's, it actually, it, it hurts the, the principal's budget, their bottom line, to hire veteran teachers. So you'll have a teacher lose their job at one school because it's been closed or taken over by a charter or you know, what have you, who've been in the system for 20, 30 years, and now they can't get hired anywhere else because they're just too expensive. Before student-based right. budgeting, uh, a school would say, oh, well, we have X amount of third graders. We need to hire another third grade teacher. And then they could choose, you know, based upon a person's qualifications, their interview, you know, mm -hmm. merit, essentially. They'd um, find a way to hire the right person, essentially. Exactly. And, and the way it is now is that you hear these principals uh, they're they're looking for uh, Teach for America, where mm. uh, the they're only required to be in the classroom for two years. Uh, they're these are, these are teachers that you know are getting this indoctrinization that you know they shouldn't be advocating for their working conditions. They shouldn't be advocating for their students. They should be following uh, whatever the principal says. The, the line that you hear in these circles is that the, the principal is the CEO of the building. And um, should be able to so say, gross. and you know, their word is is God in these in these schools. So principals like hiring from you know Teach for America because they know they'll have someone there for two years who will likely leave. And if they don't leave, if they're you know in two years you're not getting tenure, you need four years for tenure. They can um, let them go without reason. In at least in the Chicago public schools, at that point, if they decide that they just don't want to keep that person, and then hire another first year teacher. And uh, students know that. They know who the first-year teachers are. Oh, yeah. Um, they rise them folks. like hell. I remember Absolutely. those days well. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so it's, it, do, it does not lead to a better education for students by any means. Uh, and, it, and for principals, and, you know, they know it. They know that the, the less experienced teacher, they might be more malleable as far as following uh, the rules of that school, but they don't have that experience. They don't have this depth of knowledge um, that they've acquired and um, it's it just it ends up hurting the kids so you're getting these pliable robots for uh, bargain basement prices sounds like a deal yeah uh, interesting thing in Chicago though is that we've seen uh, this huge uptick in interest in charter teachers joining or organizing unions and fighting um, for for good strong contracts that include mm -hmm. classroom reforms uh, so you have, you know, you have the, the Teach for America teachers, uh, and actually some of the Teach for America teachers end up deciding that they like teaching and get on board, and well, many of them organize unions, sure, but sure. for the most part, no. And, you know, this has been kind of the pushback, like the, the education reform people and the ruling class of Chicago created this charter system, and now they have these charter teachers who come in, fall in love with the profession, and decide they want a union because they want to stay there and retire eventually from from these schools. So, you know, we have the Noble Street um, Charter Schools, which is the biggest network in Chicago, which has schools named after billionaires, by the way. Uh, if you 
contribute to the school, uh, or if, you, if you're on the board of the school, um, which are primarily very wealthy people, um, you can have a school named after you. We have a Rahner College Prep named after our governor, who is strangling public education throughout the state. But there's a Pritzker College Prep named after Penny Pritzker, oh, yeah. Penny Pritzker. Uh, former Commerce Secretary, and she actually sat on the Chicago Board of Ed. And those schools right now, the, the teachers are forming a union, and they're right now they're in the middle of this union drive, and there's a lot of passion behind it. There's the Passages Charter School Network, which just voted to go on strike. They're in contract negotiations right now that aren't moving. So if there's no deal reached by this Wednesday, they'll be the first charter school to go on strike on Thursday, or you know, first charter school nationally to go on strike, and that'll happen this Thursday. So there is definitely fight back happening within these uh, these schools. That's encouraging. That's a nice place uh, to go. I want to turn to the sort of fight back and the more positive vision of education uh, for, to hear from the both of you. And it's interesting. This all sort of contrasts so uh, so overtly with the 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 justification you hear anytime Congress brings a bunch of uh, fat cat CEOs up to account for their you know ridiculous bonuses. Mm-hmm. Right. The argument you get there anytime the bankers pay themselves a massive bonus after getting bailed out with taxpayer money. The argument is always like, well, what do you expect us to do? If you want to get the best people, you have to pay them. We mm-hmm. have to be competitive. Right. And so we're taking that logic that everyone accepts for the private sector, right? For the for-profit private sector. And we're turning it on its head and we're telling the education sector to make do with less and mm-hmm. fucking figure it out, uh, you know, or else, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's really nuts. Interesting thing though, is that mentality carries over in, comp- in compensating administrators in these charter schools because their budgets are opaque. They can take in these funds and then shuffle things around, pay the teachers peanuts. And then you have some people who operate a handful of schools making more than, the CEO of all of the Chicago public schools. Wow, that's really gross. So, <laughs> I, just you have to wonder. I'm going off script here, but you have to wonder, like, why are schools treated so differently? And it seems to me the thing that keeps coming to mind is that this, you know, all of this seems to have really vast implications for feminist politics in the United States. Because why is it that schools are ignored? Um, whose labor? Uh, by and large, is being hyper-exploited, whether it's the parents, the mothers, the teachers, who are often women, but not always, certainly. Um, And it seems to be, if not a totally uh, women-dominated labor sector, it's it's a labor sector that has been feminized in terms of being ignored and denigrated in terms of its importance in society. And that seems to play a pretty significant role here. Yeah, I think um, I, I write about that in my book, and it's right. a. I don't often hear it framed that way as like a feminist issue or a women's issue, right. um, but but yeah, that's historically what has happened and, and how schools have functioned, um, and you even see it in terms of like the the sectors of education that have more f- women in them, like childcare, um, early childhood work is far less valued than high school, which has more Mm. uh, male teachers. And um, even though it's not all women, it's like 80 to 90% women who are the workers and um, still like a vast majority of male administrators. Right. And just by and large, outside of the school in general, education has a huge role to play in just social reproduction. And we know that the burden of social reproduction in our society is placed heavily on the backs of women, um, unequally so. 
Right. It's the same old story of care work being underpaid, but extremely important. <laughs> right, right. You, we, I saw the same thing in my interview with Matt Bruenig a couple of weeks back when we were talking about welfare policy and paying for, for those types of uh, services and child care and things. It's, it's, it's a common phenomenon. It just seems to keep popping up. What do you know? <laughs> what do you know? Shocking. Yeah. Shocker. Uh, women's issues are, are not a little niche political uh, sort of uh, sect over here in the corner. It seems to, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's the whole thing, right? It's the whole pie. Uh, maybe we should start acting that way. Yeah. And yet it's actually um, something that can shut down society. Like, I think sure. that's why we've had so many of these exciting developments of like strikes that are going on and Mm -hmm. and the education field is one of the few places where workers really seem to be able to have consistent bargaining power still no matter how many reforms they enact that's right i think it's really important that teachers continue to be that voice in labor um and that and that that all of these victories are not just about education but it's about what's going on in society as a whole Right. And Jane McAlevey brought up in my fantastic interview with her a few weeks back that uh, she thinks that the healthcare sector is a real vital, um, real vital node in the capitalist economy right now in terms of being strategically valuable for, mm-hmm. for workers' action. And it's precisely for that reason is that you, they haven't quite figured out how to outsource a bedside nurse right. or a surgeon or uh, someone who who mops the floor at, at one of these inner city hospitals, you know, for low wages. And as hard as we try, <laughs> particularly in university education, to outsource instructors through these uh, massive online uh, platform classrooms and things like that, we haven't found a way to outsource teachers to a, a lower wage uh, co- economy in India or China. So it seems to be a pretty vital, uh, vital, vital site of resistance. Yeah, they're trying though. I mean, that's I think that's what's behind a lot of these techno utopian fixes for education that are supported by Gates and Walton right. Family Foundation is um like we've talked about a little bit before that it's tr- they're trying to move the human element the the labor element out of education. But so far it seems not very successful. The these the educational products that they come out with are just not very good. Like there, I mean, I, I use Google Classroom. It's it's okay. It kind of complicates things more than um, just pencil and paper sometimes. And another thing that's really interesting is like they want to throw out these free laptops and like platforms and stuff. But a lot of it seems like Google's not really familiar with the idea that like any New York City public school, the building is so old and our infrastructure is so old <laughs> that they never work. <laughs> like, right. and, and they're constantly like, why, why can't we get teachers to use this in the classroom? Well, because I don't want to be standing there for 30 minutes of a 40 minute yeah. period trying to figure out technology um, because like we can't get our act together and build actual infrastructure in the country. Right. So this is a good place to pivot to your chapter three. It's uh, Edutopia against technical fixes to political problems, because that's what we're talking around. And you open up with a really interesting anecdote. And by the way, I know I'm talking back back to the book quite a bit. People just got fucking by the book. It's really, really <laughs> Definitely. good. Um, <laughs> I was telling Megan off air, and this is not even remotely an insult, but I expected it to be kind of a primer. I mean, I've been around socialist politics for a long time, and I don't certainly know everything about education, but I know quite a bit, and I expected it to be 
fairly primary, but it is very accessible to a beginner. I don't want to say it's not, but it's also way more than a primer. I mean, it really is a, a, a you do something really new and interesting and novel in this book. And so no matter how long you've been around education or how many Jacobin articles or whatever in these times articles you've read about education, you're still going to learn something. So pick up this book if you haven't already. So on chapter three, you 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 talk about uh, an experience you had at a professional development training program, and and uh, you are asked to imagine what kind of school you would design if you had five million dollars. And so the the, pro, the the types of ideas that people came up with were smaller classes, a bigger building, workshops and services for parents, uh, even internet access in the classroom. And then once you sort of did that, you came up with your best case example. You were asked to consider how you would implement those changes to address problems without the money. <laughs> right. And so it's, which it's, I mean, of course, like, cause you as the worker should be able to make up for all of that for not having the money. It's like, um, Sylvia Federici calls it the role that capitalism has invented for us as women. Right. And it's, and I think you can apply that really to all workers in care work. Right. As, as, as labor becomes uh, feminized, as I say, and, in, in, in in a technical sense, labor has been feminized uh, through through many sectors, education and healthcare and, and the rest. Um, you mentioned another astonishing statistic just on that point, that teachers across the United States fund half of their classroom supplies out of pocket. So tell us a little mm-hmm. bit about that. And, and Kenzo, maybe you can weigh in on this, the kinds of pressures as well that teachers have to uh, endure just to, just to, maintain a quality level of education in their classrooms. Yeah. I mean, I think sad to say that's like one of my, the least of my worries as a teacher, but (laughs) yes, it it is something that is, I think it's, it speaks to the way that we value or do not value um, people working in classrooms and students um, basically living most of their lives in classrooms. Mm -hmm. Like our, our, I think it's, worth repeating that teachers work in conditions or students learning conditions. Um, but, but yeah, Mm -hmm. I mean, every year I spend hundreds of dollars on the basic necessities to make a classroom run. I mean, this, the district offers like you go to the storeroom and it's like binders and some pens. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, um, I think it's, I think it's also just really important. The message that these subpar environments send to kids and like, it's actually not just, um, like markers and crayons and pencils and things like that. But it's also the school buildings. It's that you pass through a metal detector on your way into school in a lot of city buildings. It's that like the steps are crumbling as you walk in the food that they give you is trash. Like it's, it's and and actually the Trump budget, they're cutting even um, the very low grade nutritional standards that we have for students in this country. And that's, I think that's going on in Britain too. So it's like a theme that's playing out around the world, but like my kids eat French fries and chicken nuggets every day. And like, what, what are we saying to these kids about, about how we value them as human beings when that's what they're eating? And this is not the way that schools have to be like, uh, I mean, there's other countries like France and um, some of the ones that come up repeatedly in like models that the United States should emulate. They serve their kids like these beautiful lunches, you know, like, and we take for granted that our kids should be eating shit. Mm -hmm. Right. Under Trump, they're going to get curdled milk and hardtack before it's all over with. We continue on this trend, I think. Yeah, I think they'd be they'd be really happy to 
to push that. Like yeah. that's that's their vision. So you, you touched on a slogan, and at my local, when I was a graduate student, uh, my local went on strike, and we won on largely on the back of, first of all, militant trade union activism, mm-hmm. but on the back of, of that very slogan you brought up, which is that teachers' working conditions are students' learning conditions. And this was a slogan that was really kind of uh, popularized by the core caucus and in, in the Chicago Teachers Union. Uh, so Kenzo, tell us a little bit about the experience of that that more f- most famous strike under the leadership of Karen Lewis and the core caucus and and what kind of vision that plays out for education and society. Well, it was interesting because uh, leading up to the 2012 strike in 2011 uh, there was this convergence of different privatizers and billionaires who came together to orchestrate this deal uh, in, in our state capital to diminish the bargaining rights of uh, specifically Chicago Teachers Union. It, it did uh, affect the, um, the entire state, but then there's this interesting thing they do in Springfield, which is our state capital, where they'll, they'll write education policy specific to districts uh, of more than 500,000 students. And there's only one district in the entire state that applies to, which is the Chicago Public Schools. So... Uh, essentially, what this what happened here is you had uh, this group Stand for Children, which was led by uh, this guy Jonah Edelman, working with different billionaires like Bruce Rauner, uh, Gates Foundation, uh, and then local uh, lawmakers to uh, essentially strong arm the uh, Speaker of the House to uh, to accept this and strong armed everyone involved. Um, these backroom deals and he actually laid it all out in this video that he didn't want to get uncovered but he just laid this all out at the Aspen Ideas Festival where they were able to uh, limit all of our bargaining um, essentially to uh, pay and benefits which you know it's it's bad for two reasons first of all teachers do want to bargain for classroom reforms for smaller class sizes for supplies for you know healthy working conditions uh, you know as learning conditions for the students right and uh, on top of that too that's also how teachers and, and staffers curry favor with the public when we are negotiating our contracts is by saying well you know we want to have small class sizes and the board refuses to bargain on it well if you take away our ability to do that completely then all we can all we can strike over legally are paying benefits which you know the editorial pages are very can very easily spin that as just these greedy teachers, and these greedy teachers are striking right. that line. So uh, it took a lot of work with building ties to community groups, community activists, leading up to the, the 2012 strike, leading up to the expiration of our contract, um, and you know listening to them as well and figuring out what they want to see in their schools. And we laid out this program called the School Chicago Children's Deserve. Uh, which not only laid out these reforms that'll help the classroom, but also had a revenue plan as well. Uh, and this was presented, of course, to the Chicago Public Schools and the mayor, um, who they had their own ideas involved with the, the way schooling should happen. Um, and this also happened on the heels of Rahm Emanuel taking away our contractual 4% raise as soon as he took office. That was like his, that was the first uh, blow he, he struck us. Was uh, He's going to hang those fat cat public uh, yeah. school teachers out to dry, you know, because those are they, the ones who crashed the economy, right? Yes. Yeah. And they definitely had lawyers bastards. pouring through the contract to say, what's, what, what's, what are things that we can do outside of a contract here? And one of the things they could do is they could reopen the contract and take away the 4% raise. So they were, they were doing all of these things, but then you know, we made it very clear that, you know, although we were 
technically striking over over non um, pay and benefit issues. We we were definitely fighting for those issues. So right, and, and they, they threatened an injunction over that, if I'm not mistaken, at several points they when they said, "Hey, wait a second, you're not allowed to." You're not allowed to technically strike over, you know, classroom conditions or learning conditions or community issues or whatever. Is that correct? So there was that kind yeah. of like a union busting fight back there. Yeah, it was one of those situations where like but yet the ROM uh, tried to get an injunction against a strike that was thrown out. Uh, and then they also there's part of this this SB seven, which is the, the bill that diminished our rights, one of part of the process is we need to have an independent fact finder come in and look at the financials and figure out what's reasonable. And that the fact finder said not only was the CTU asking for a completely reasonable contract, they should have been asking for more. Um, wow. So like every single thing that was thrown at us by this education, the corporate education reform movement, um, in some ways worked against them. And that was largely due towards the organizing and the attention given to making these connections to the community. So every rally we had, we had people who weren't members even out there with signs saying, you know, we know our teachers are fighting for us and they're fighting for small class sizes and they're fighting for resources. Uh, so that made the strike very, uh, that's, that's what made it successful. You know, I've seen some strikes where community is not engaged and there's, there's absolutely no leverage there. You know, if the people who are sending their kids to the school aren't on your side, then, you know, the, it, it gives puts all the power on management side of the table. That's right. Jane McAlevey laid out her strategy of of seeing the sort of whole worker uh, organizing model that's so important important in terms of uh, seeing the, the community as an organic uh, you know uh, aspect of the workplace, and that these people don't the teachers and the students don't just spend their lives in school all day long, but they're an integral part of the community. And so, you know, school uh, labor issues are community issues. And, and I think that was the, the real success of, of the CTU model during that time. Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's as close as you can get to the, the social movement unionist model you can get, which I think is very crucial, where not only is the union fighting for their, uh, you know, a strong contract and, and implementing that contract and enforcing it, but also issues that might not seem completely related to that contract, but at the same time have to do with our communities and have to do with the work we do. This is why CTU and a number of uh, unions that are not involved, you know, where, where the workers are, are made or make more than minimum wage, are supporting things like the Fight for 15, because we know that many of our students are supporting their families and they're making minimum wage, and their families, many of those people are making minimum wage. So we have this this power on our side that we need to be using for our students. And really, at the end of the day, it is improving education when the parents are able to bring home a living wage. Right. So, Megan, you talk about in your chapter four here, every child should have 100 parents against personal fixes to political problems. So this sounds a lot similar to what uh, Kenzo was describing, um, the, the, the sort of uh, social movement trade unionism of the CTU model in Chicago. Um, what, what is your vision there for New York City and for the, the, the nation uh, as a whole? Yeah, I think what Kenzo was talking about kind of gets to the core of what we need to be doing as teachers today to advocate for our rights and our students' rights. And I think it's really important to understand that these kinds of approaches are not, core is not an anomaly. It's rooted in a really long history of educators um, fighting for their for their rights and their students' rights together. Um, for example, in New York City, it, prior to the UFT we had, which is our current um, union, 
we had a union called the TU, the Teachers Union. And um, these were teachers who advocated in the 20s and 30s um, on behalf of their students and with their students and, and in their communities for Afrocentric curriculum and for um, better schools, more resources, more funding, things like that. Um, and, and ultimately, those teachers were kind of wiped out of the school system by anti-communists, which I think is a really, really important lesson for us in terms of fighting for tenure and how um, critical that is because tenure is just due process, right? So um, actually, in fact, recently I saw a news headline, a teacher um, was just disciplined by the Department of Education for for being a communist. (laughs) So so these are still like really scarily relevant um, issues. But yeah, I think that's, that's the teaching is part of this larger social um teachers must be socially engaged is what i'm saying so i think that that's the only way that we have of fighting back it's encouraging and i think you know part of the 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 larger groundswell that you're seeing with the bernie sanders phenomenon and beyond um really comes from you know teachers taking the lead in many instances i know a lot along with say the 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 california nurses uh, the CTU and the the, uh, the uh, Moore Caucus in New York City has been at the forefront of sort of uh, in, initiating these these types of things. So I, I expect that those will continue into the future. And Megan, you talk quite a bit in your book about how this is a whole community effort, and and in terms of uh, turning this thing around, we're going to need to have uh, broad uh, left social democratic reforms to uh, remake society and, and to uh, move away from this sort of scarcity model, both of education and of employment. So I think it's really exciting that there's, there are movements uh, going on across the country for, for those types of things. Yeah, I think that experiencing struggle and control and authority in schools seems to really be preparing teachers and students um, for political activity, which is kind of a really exciting thing. And, and I think that's part of why schools have been targeted by corporate reformers, because they are some of our last public places in this increasingly privatized society, which is why public schooling is a critical issue, not just for parents and not just for children, um, but for any leftist, any organizer. Um, And actually, there are a lot of good models. We've talked about some of them, but um, I think SNCC schools um, during the civil rights era, which were organized by Septima Clark and Ella Baker um, and all of these radical leaders, they, they provided a model really of students learning in the classroom, like learning literacy and other academic schools, but also um, just envisioning themselves as and learning to envision themselves as, as active agents in um, political struggle. Um, and, and also um, there's a there are some schools in Reggio Emilia, Italy, which were founded kind of in the rubble of World War II. And this is becoming a really, so Reggio Emilia schooling is becoming a huge trend in um, the United States and New York City. I've seen it a lot. And right now, these schools are really expensive um, because they're beautiful. They encourage democratic participation. They're kind of everything that our public schools are not. Does that come out of the um, autonomist, uh, the autonomist sort of tradition in, in Italy? I'm not, I'm not really familiar with that immediately. So um, I'm not sure about that. As far as I know, it's it was literally like a town um, that was destroyed, Reggio Emilia. It's a place. 
coming together and saying, and the parents asking, like, what do we want our schools to look like in a, in a humane society, in a society where we're not constantly at war? And they really didn't have a lot of um, resources, obviously, in the beginning. And obviously, over time, this has been more institutionalized. So a huge percentage of tax money goes towards the schools continuing to be what they are. But they developed a really radical model for education to the extent that, like, um, teachers will record their students on tape record, like little children, twos, threes, fours, fives, and listen to what they're saying and try to try to pick out what their interests are. And they'll develop their units of study based on that. They use a lot of documentation and taking pictures and things like that, which I think is really interesting to contrast to the kinds of documentation that we do in public schools today, which is like, if it didn't, if you didn't write it down, it didn't happen, Uh you know, like, we need to, so it's, it's to the extent that like, when the, when the district, when the city comes in to evaluate our schools, like, we need to be writing down teacher conferences, different interactions that we've had with kids to prove that they actually happened. Like I spoke to this child about and about his or her needs. And this is how differentiation is seen today um, because it's something that's measurable, which we know is like a really big emphasis in, in neoliberal reforms. It's got to be measurable. It's got to be on the books. And we've got to be able to record some sort of tangible progress from it. But the way that it's done in Reggio Emilia schools, it's like, it's a completely different question that's being asked and answered. It's like, what are, what are the kids interested in? And I think what's really important about that is that it starts from the perspective of the students as the experts, even two and three year olds and not the teachers and not the administrators and not the school system. Right. That's a really a novel approach. Are you seeing any types of innovation like that in Chicago, Kenzo? Those kind of models, I mean, there's definitely, there, there are only a, a couple of the Montessori public schools in Chicago where really it is student directed, but you know, that's, it's a lot, it's a, uh, a test in system. So not every student has access to those schools. And as far as like, that's definitely uh, models outside of uh, this drill and skills that are definitely discouraged. You do have teachers working independently making sure that, you know, their students are getting a full education experience. But I wouldn't say there's a lot going on as far as the district setting aside schools for innovation. This brings up a a nice point to sort of finish on here as we wrap things up. Megan, you write in your book, uh, you, you cite feminist sociologist Michelle Barrett, who points out that the state is not a pre given instrument of oppression, but is a site of struggle and to some extent at least responsive to concerted pressure. And you write, this pressure won't bring about liberation or emancipation on its own, but rejecting it altogether is to lapse into the romance of anarchism. Uh, So it seems to me that what we're really pointing to here is that uh, public education uh, and education in general in society is just a natural leverage point to make the state this uh, site of struggle. And so it's not surprising then that teachers often lead the way throughout history, I should say, uh, in, in, in radical reform and revolutionary movements. Yeah. And I think that's such a fundamental point for me that I might have echoed that quote like five times in the past hour. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I think that, yeah, there's, 
as as leftists, we can't turn away from the state because when we do that, so one of the things that I researched for my book and then I looked into was like, what would schools possibly look like that were not authoritarian and that were student-centered and democratic? And um, there's there's lots of different versions of this in the country, but as Kenzo mentioned, very few of them are public and very few of them are attended by students who are not upper class, who are not white. So like, for example, the free schools, there are these, and, and Sudbury Valley schools, there are these like really small private schools where students do what I was talking about a little bit with the Reggio Emilia schools. They're kind of following their own path through learning and determining what interests them. And then teachers kind of serve as guides and add on you know, like, here's how you can accomplish your own goals. But the goals are determined by the students and not by the teachers. But like, these are, these are programs that exist in in only generally in upper class communities, and only upper class students have access to them. And I see really a lot of the same things going on with sort of anarchistic schools where there are great schools that parents are homeschooling their kids and and the community is teaching the kids like community is a really tricky word right we've talked about it a lot during this interview and and community schools can be a great thing but it can also be like very isolating and segregating and so i think when when you're asking parents to provide like to paint the school or to provide educational services like even a lot of co-op preschools here in new york city you're really making it impossible for parents who work to access those resources so as radical as your ideals may be what happens like what the ultimate essence of the project is is very segregating. It results in segregation. Um, I was really interested in like looking at some of the models, like very progressive models. And one of the schools that I looked at for education, and one of the schools that I looked at was Avenues, which is a private school in Manhattan. Um, It's $40,000 a year tuition. Katie uh, Holmes's child, Surrey, went there. (laughs) Um, So it's, it's, uh, definitely in, inaccessible for most students. But I thought it was really interesting that their curriculum is called City as a School, which echoes the anarchist Paul Goodman's idea of like what education should be, which is kids kind of going out in the city and doing their own thing and learning from the city. So, so we do have those things, but it's just a very few number of children that, can, that have access to them. Do you see the sort of crunchy progressive parent uh, replicating these anarchist models in Chicago, Kenzo? Is that is or, or across the country that you're familiar with? I mean, this seems like um, it's telling that the upper point zero one percent are are replicating the kind of uh, socialist utopian strategy that we that we would like as a universal show, social policy here. Well, I, I, I'm not seeing a lot of it, um, but certainly if you know, parents want that, like they have to be very involved in the school um, to get any kind of pedagogical change happening through local school councils, through parent groups, PTA, PTO. It really, you almost have to take it on as a second job if you want to have any kind of change happening within your own child's school. And, you know, there are schools where parents came together and they they were able to rebuild the model. Uh, Nothing like 
as dramatic as what Megan was explaining about you know some of those other models of schools, but definitely just making sure that students' needs are being uh, responded to. Um, it, it takes a lot of effort from parents. Right. And as Megan uh, alluded to, the, the effort that's able to be expended uh, mm-hmm. is oftentimes far more white and far more wealthy in terms of how those programs are implemented because of who just the kind of boots on the ground in terms of who has the time and the freedom to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it seems to me that what, what, what we're pointing to here is that we need to have more local, state, and national initiatives to implement these types of, of radical uh, utopian education strategies. Which I think is why it's so essential that leftists need to take their starting point as reforming the whole structure and the whole um, school system and not just creating these separate enclaves that their kids can benefit from. Right. Um, but also, it, it is really important for us to recognize that our schools are failing students. So this is not an irrational response. It's just that it needs to be a more egalitarian one. Right, right. That seems to be a consistent theme throughout my show. Uh, this is going to be the 13th episode. And at the end of every show, we come around to a consensus that we need more universal social programs. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. <laughs> wow. Who, who would have thought uh, that it was just that simple <laughs> and just that difficult at the same time? And it's about time that we had a left that understood that and was fighting for uh, those types of things uh, rather than these kind of like radical enclaves and the interstices of the state or whatever. This sort of like, I would say, previous anarchist zeitgeist that we used to have on the left and say like the Occupy era. And I think I think the I think the tides are really turning in our favor for these more sort of left social democratic policies on the left. And that's really exciting. Yeah, I think neoliberalism is happy for us to be atomized and individuals. And what is critical to build is solidarity and collective power. Any last words, Kenzo, in terms of your union efforts and that type of thing? Well, you know, that's, uh, that's where our power is. Uh, our unions, uh, our work, our unions working with community to ensure that our students are getting what they need, deserve and also our communities are getting what they need as well. And, you know, it's, there aren't any easy fixes. Uh, there's no politician that we're going to elect who's going to fix everything. There's not even a slate of politicians around that are going to fix anything. It really is, you know, up to us as individuals to become involved in any way we can, and putting that pressure on our on um, on the decision makers. Yes, well, that's a fantastic way to end, Kenzo and Megan. I, I'm sure I could have had you each on the show individually. You both have so much to say and to, to contribute, but I wanted to get both of you here to kind of get a, a more broader perspective, uh, at least in terms of the uh, Midwest and East Coast. Uh, so, thank you both for coming on the show, and uh, maybe we can have you each on again sometime to talk more in depth about these things in the future. Okay, great. Thanks, Adam. Yeah, thanks. And that was our show. Thanks again to my two guests. Go out and buy Megan Erickson Kilpatrick's book, Class War, The Privatization of Childhood. Thanks again to Kenzo Shibata. He was fantastic. Always learn a lot from him about labor and education in Chicago in particular, when I talk to him. So as one more reminder, if you like the show, if you want to support the movement, get behind this project and, and see these types of interviews and these shows uh, uh, keeping, keep on coming in the future, check us out on patreon.com slash dead pundits. 
You can subscribe to my Patreon page. You can get access to some exclusive content. I've got some really exciting exclusive stuff coming up very, very soon. In particular, I have the long-awaited three-hour interview with Mr. Adolph Reed himself. This interview was done about three or four months ago with two of my uh, former associates, Drew Franklin and R.L. Stevens. Uh, we did this under a different alias, uh, under a different show, but it's a fantastic uh, interview with Adolph Reed. We get really in-depth about his own personal history, and he opens up about a lot of issues that he doesn't talk a lot about. So that is going to be in our exclusive content very, very soon in the next week or two. So if you are a subscriber, and I love you guys, you will all be rewarded. If you're not a subscriber to my Patreon page yet, Go ahead and head on over there and subscribe so you will be a member and you'll 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 know you know as soon as I post that footage and other exclusive types of things like that. So check me out on Twitter at Dead Pundits. Check me out on Facebook. I've got some good stuff coming to you all summer long. We've only just begun. With your support, we can keep this thing moving. So thanks again. Enjoy your spring. I'll see you again next week. Dead Pundit out. Oh, this you crazy mother. Yeah.